Friends, you may already have completed book two, but I thought I would just go back and bridge a little bit uh, between where we're leaving off in book two and where we're picking up in book three. So, of note, in 377b, then shall we so easily let the children hear just any tales fashioned by just anyone and take into their souls opinions for the most part opposite to those we'll suppose they must have when they are grown up? In no event will we permit it. First, as it seems, we must supervise the makers of tales. And if they make a fine tale, it must be approved. But if it's not, it must be rejected. We'll persuade nurses and mothers to tell the approved tales to their children and to shape their souls with tales more than their bodies with hands. Most of those they now tell us must be thrown out. Which sort? In the greater tales, we'll also see the smaller ones, I said, Socrates is speaking, for both the greater and the smaller must be taken from the same model and have the same power. Don't you suppose so? I do. But I don't grasp what you mean by the greater ones. The ones Hesiod and Homer told us, and the other poets too. They surely composed false tales for human beings and used to tell them and still do tell them. So just a little bit further, when we get to 378b, Socrates goes ahead and explains what he means by that. Above all, it mustn't be said that gods make war on gods and plot against them and have battles with them, for it isn't even true, provided that those who are going to guard the city for us must consider it most shameful to be easily angry with one another. They are far from needing to have tales told and embroideries woven about battles of giants and the many diverse disputes of gods and heroes with their families and kin. But if we are somehow going to persuade them that no citizen ever was angry with another, and that to be so is not holy, it's just such things that must be told to children right away by old men and women. And as they get older, the poets must be compelled to make up speeches for them which are close to these. So, I really want you to pay attention to the fact that I think Socrates is not playing it straight. I think he chose Hesiod and Homer precisely because it would be preposterous to say that this is the wrong stuff to teach young people. But what he's highlighting is this public opinion that's shaped by the kind of excusable violence that heroism allows for. That he is a wily fox, and as such, has chosen the very thing we find so enthralling and asked us if we could manage our desire in this place. So that's what I would say is worthy of your attention at 378 uh, C and D. Um, you then get the following. Doubtless something like this. The God must surely always be described such as he is, whether one presents him in epics, lyrics, or tragedies. Yes, he must be. Then is the God really good, and hence must he be said to be so? Of course. Well, but none of the good things is harmful, is it? Not in my opinion. Does that which isn't harmful do harm? In no way. Does that which does harm do any evil? Not, not that either. That which does no evil would not be the cause of an evil? How could it be? What about this? Is the good beneficial? Yes. Then it's the cause of doing well? Yes. Then the good is not the cause of everything. Rather, it is the cause of the things that are in a good way, while it is not responsible 
for the bad things. I think the really key part of that exchange is while it is not responsible for the bad things. I think that's what Plato is holding out for. The collateral damage, the unavoidable costs, but also, therefore, the humility that comes with knowing what's in the mix. Then, Socrates says, we mustn't accept Homer's or any other poets foolishly making this mistake about the gods and saying that two jars stand on Zeus's threshold full of dooms, the one of good, the other of wretched. And the man to whom Zeus gives a mixture of both, at one time he happens on evil, at another good. But the man to whom he doesn't give any mixture, but the second pure, evil misery drives him over the divine earth. Remember that Zeus is the dispenser to us of good and evil alike. So, this particular exchange in 379D and E is bringing up theodicy questions with which the church has wrestled from time immemorial. That is, how are we to speak of the presence of evil in the world if God is the prime mover? And Socrates is, within a polytheistic universe, asking the similar question about the depiction of the gods uh, in the heroic epics. So we move from there in 379 D and E over to um, 381. And in 381, we get this. 381 D. Then you best of men, I said, let none of the poets tell us that the gods, like wandering strangers, take on every sort of shape and visit the cities. And let none tell lies about Proteus and Theus, or bring on an altered Hera, neither, either in tragedies or other kinds of poetry as a priestess, making a collection for the life-giving children in Inicus, uh, Argos's river. And let them not lie to us in many other such ways, nor should the mothers in their turn be convinced by these things and frighten the children with tales badly told that certain gods go around nights looking like all sorts of strangers, lest they slander the gods, while at the same time making the children more cowardly. And so, all the boogeyman tales that you've ever been told, or any version of uh, smiting that you can imagine is part of the catechetical arsenal. According to, according to Socrates, there's, there's a problem with the telling of the tales in these ways, because that will shape personal morality. And I think that's what we have to ask on a larger scale. How much of what you've been told, how much of what you've seen, how much of what you're willing to subscribe to is shaping your personal morality? So I think we needed that bridge from the end of book two, and uh, in order to work our way into the beginning of book three. There's a little more about Homer and about uh, uh, depictions of Zeus, and there's a little bit about Aeschylus as well. Um, I'd like to say that we're ready now to begin at 386a, and uh, we'll round out this episode with just a reading of 386a through c. About the gods, then, I said, this is Socrates speaking, such, it seems, are the things that should and should not be heard from childhood on by men who would honor gods and ancestors and not take lightly their friendship with each other. And I, he said, suppose our impression is right. 
And what if they are to be courageous? Mustn't they also be told things that will make them fear death least? Or do you believe that anyone who has this terror in him would ever become courageous? By Zeus, I don't, he said. What about this? Do you suppose anyone who believes Hades' domain exists and is full of terror will be fearless in the face of death and choose death in battles over defeat and slavery? Not at all. Then concerning these tales, too, it seems we must supervise those who undertake to tell them and ask them not simply to disparage Hades' domain in this way, but rather to praise it, because that, they say, is neither true nor beneficial for men who are to be fighters. Indeed we must, he said. Then we'll expunge all such things, I said, beginning with this verse. I'd rather be on the soil, a serf to another, to a man without lot, whose means of life are not great, than rule over all the dead who've perished. With that, we'll end this episode 7.